We, um, <clears throat> we come this morning to, um, quite frankly, a confronting passage. Um, I've been sitting in it all week, and so you can join me in this place. But it is no stretch to say that there is no passage that is more central, more important to our faith than the one we're going to look at today. So we will open this word and see what the Spirit has for us. But as we do that, let's pray and uh, open our hearts to receive. Father, we sit here this morning drawn together by your spirit into one family reconciled to you reconciled to one another because of the cross of Jesus there is nothing in your word more central to life more central to faith than what we are going to look at today. And it is sobering. And so I pray for the power of your spirit to move across this room into each of our hearts. Soften us. Open us. Touch us. And remind us again of what this reconciliation cost and help us to receive what you have for us with gratitude. Help us to look fully on the cross of Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. In these last few chapters in Mark, as we have been going through this gospel, we have been watching Jesus steadily making his way to the cross. Notably from chapter 11 onward, from, from the triumphal entry, we have been watching Jesus step by step moving toward the cross. And it would be easy, though it would be wrong, to see this simply as the natural progression of this section of the gospel, because that's where things really, really heat up. As there is one dispute after another, one confrontation after another, and it seems to be coming to a head in this section of Mark's gospel but we have to understand that it has been coming even earlier in the book. As we go back to chapter 8, and you're going to be turning to a few passages here, so just get your Bibles ready. Chapter 8, verse 31, where Jesus clearly prophesies 
his own death. He, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he states the same thing again in chapter 9, verse 31, and then in, again in chapter 10, verse 33. He, he prophesies, he reminds his disciples, this is what is ahead of me. This is, this is where we're going. But even these mentions are, are not the first places where we are told of Jesus' death. We go back into the Old Testament, and there are a number of passages we could turn to, but look with me at Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 53. In this, in this chapter here, in, the, in this Old Testament passage, we find one of the most graphic and gruesome descriptions of the brutality of Jesus' death. Beginning in verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his stripes we are healed. He was oppressed, afflicted. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. These words that describe in such a graphic way what, what Jesus faced, yet written hundreds of years before the event. Isaiah chooses his words carefully, and they describe this unspeakable horror of the scene. But even still, we have to go, to go further back into the, the songbook, the, the, the ancient book of worship, the book of Psalms, Psalm 22, yet another scene that describes this event. The, the script for Jesus' words on the cross begins Psalm 22, verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my, my groaning And also for his mockers, verse 9, verse 8, he trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him, let him rescue him, for he delights in him. And is there a more pitiable description of Jesus in his final moments? Look at verse 6. I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised 
by the people. All who see me mock me. But still we have to go even further back. Look at Numbers chapter 21. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Numbers chapter 21, this image that is erected in the, in the wilderness as the people are afflicted. There is an image of a bronze serpent raised on a pole, and as the afflicted people look to the raised serpent, they will be healed. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it up on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. It was the very image that Jesus refers to in John 3.14 to describe his own crucifixion. And as people, as Moses raised up the serpent in the wilderness, so I will be raised up on a cross. And as people looked to the serpent and lived, so they would look to me and find life and find healing. But still we have to go further back. Because Jesus' steady march to the cross actually finds it's beginning in Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. Here we find the small headwaters of this mighty stream that, that flows from Genesis to Revelation, but the climax is here at the cross of Jesus Christ. As an ancient Christmas carol puts it, and all was for an apple, an apple that she took. The one tree in the garden that is forbidden. And in this one moment, we find the nature, the substance, and the consequences of sin. As Cornelius Plantinga calls it, sin is culpable shalom breaking. And that's exactly what we see here. And we look at the result of this one sin, verse 7, chapter 3, verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. But the worst we find in verse 8. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God. Brothers and sisters, the greatest disaster that has ever happened in the history of the world, and one from which we have suffered and attempted to find relief from ever since, the story of God and mankind and mission from that moment on has been an attempt to undo the catastrophic damage of this one event. Plantinga calls it the vandalism of shalom. Dorothy Sayers describes sin as the violent destruction of relationships. 
Too often we simply look at sin as actions that we should or should not do. But, but when we look at this passage, what do we see? It is the violence that is done to every relationship known to us. Every single relationship has been destroyed by this one act. Yes, separation from God. We think of that one, but look at, look at the passage in its full separated from God, separated from others. They hid themselves from each other. Separated from the world that we live in. We live in tension even with creation and even separation from ourselves. I don't know what lurks in the depths of my heart and neither do you. Separated from self, others, and God. And what Adam and Eve started, we have perfected through the course of our lives, hiding and covering, guilt and shame, blame and judgment. But in the midst of this devastation comes a word of hope. God will redeem all of this. Verse 15, to the serpent, he says, there is one coming, the son of a woman. He will bruise your head, and you will bruise his heel. From that moment on, humankind has longed for God's justice. to put an end to the curse once and for all. But brothers and sisters, justice comes at a very high price. It is a payment that only God himself can make. And that's what we read in Mark chapter 15. Turn with me there. Mark 15, beginning at verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some versions read, why have you abandoned me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, 
And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James the younger, and of Joseph, and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. There is obviously so much that could be said of this short scene. The, the themes and the meanings behind them are inexhaustible. Everything that we hold most dear in our faith is dependent on these verses. No act in all of Scripture, no moment in the life of Jesus is more important than this. Indeed, everything in the life of Jesus and everything in our creeds, everything in our confessions is dependent on this one act. The, the substance of Jesus' teaching, his miracles, his authority, even his very identity, as we see here, is confirmed in this one event. I want to look at three phrases that capture the significance of it. As I said, there's so much to be said, but I want to look at three phrases that I think capture the, 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 the significance of what, of what this passage means for us. The first, that question from the lips of Jesus, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? Verses 33 and 34, when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice. An eerie darkness shrouds the land in the, in the middle of the day. And as heaven itself looks away from this, this gruesome scene, creation sits in mourning as its creator hangs on a crude instrument of torture. Mark emphasizes the desertion, the betrayal, the rejection of Jesus all through this, this section again and again and again. We see that Jesus is alone. His disciples have fled or they, they follow at a great distance. And even here at the cross, we see there are people looking on from a distance But nothing was more agonizing to Jesus. As bad as that is, as bad as it is to be separated from your friends or those people who have followed you, nothing could compare with the agony of being separated from his father. For the first time ever, Jesus experienced the full ugliness and horror of sin. God in his purity and in his holiness can have nothing to do with sin. 
And here Jesus shares in the fullness of human despair. He feels the anguish of our hiding and our covering. He he feels the weight of our guilt and our shame. He he takes on our blaming and our, our judgment of one another. The wrongs we have done and the wrongs done to us. All of that. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for for our sake, God made him to be sin. Not just take on sin, but to become sin. Who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. And he takes all of that on himself. I think this is the whole meaning of Jesus' agony in the garden. While we see the the beatings and the the physical anguish that Jesus endured and the, the unspeakable grotesqueness of it all, I am convinced that the separation from the Father is the greatest agony that Jesus suffered here. There There had never been a time in his entire existence throughout eternity when that when his intimate communion with the father was broken this is the only time in in the fullness of his existence that he has ever experienced this the spiritual agony that jesus endured alone in this darkness is one that you and i can never fully understand And thanks be to God, we will never experience. In that moment, the fullness of God's hatred of sin was poured out. And Jesus took the full dose of it. If hell is at its very root, separation from God then this is the fullness of that experience. This was an alienation that he had never known before, and he did it for us, so that we would never need to experience such abandonment. Because he took it, we are spared. And that's why Jesus could say to his disciples, I will not leave you as orphans. I will never leave you or forsake you. Mark tells us in verse 37, Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Mark doesn't specify what those words were, but John does. It is finished. There is nothing more. Everything is fulfilled. Jesus' mission is complete the head of the serpent is crushed. 
the power of sin, the strength of sin, the cycle of sin that had been set forth in the garden is now broken. The justice of God is satisfied. The Greek word tetelestai that Jesus utters here has has actually been found on ancient papyri, on ancient tax receipts. We would use the phrase paid in full. Nothing more remains to be done. It is paid in full. I sometimes wonder as I consider this phrase why we find it so difficult to live in the freedom of this truth. Why do we continue to make demands of ourselves and as though we could ever add to Jesus' complete work? What else could we add to it? Why do we continue to make demands of other people We would nullify this statement of Jesus when we put conditions on our forgiveness of one another. I will forgive if. That nullifies this it is finished statement. We nullify this this statement of Jesus when we withhold our acceptance of a brother or sister and insist that they live up to another standard or meet another qualification. We nullify this statement when we make demands and allow the walls of our hostility and our sin to stand between us. Because it is finished, the hiding, the covering, the the blaming, the judgment, the guilt, the shame, can finally just be released. Just lay it down. But we prefer to nurse our wounds and our offenses, and in our pride, we would rather save ourselves, wouldn't we? Brothers and sisters, it is finished. I don't think there are any words in Scripture that give us more freedom than these. Nor are there any words that give us the ability to freely love and accept one another. It is finished. Human sin is stubborn, but it is not as stubborn as the grace of God. It is finished. There's one more phrase. Oddly enough, it is the centurion, a Roman soldier who finally recognizes Jesus for who he is. Look at verse 39. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. Here is a man who is trained, who is skilled in the art of death. 
this is what he is trained for, to kill. He has seen countless people hung on crosses and endure the fullness of such an agonizing death. It sometimes took days for it to finally take place. And with the final cry and the final breath of, of, of Jesus, the, the heavy curtain we read here in the, in the temple separating the most holy place from the people was ripped in two from top to bottom. Jesus, our great high priest, enters into that holy place and he makes a way for all of us to enter into the presence of God. The separation caused by sin has been healed. The wall is torn down. And the first to make the declaration is this Roman soldier. The statement is a powerful one. As a centurion, he would only make this statement about the Roman emperor. Caesar is the son of God. No, he, as he has witnessed these events, he sees in Jesus a man like no other, like no other person he has ever seen. And it brings him to only one conclusion that this man is fully who he claimed to be. He is the Son of God. The words form the climax, really, of Mark's gospel. This is what he has been aiming for all along. The, the words are also the words of our confessions of faith. And interestingly, they are the words uttered by this Gentile, at his, as his response to Jesus' death. Truly, this man was the Son of God. In the way he lived his life, in the way he, in the way he finished his life, all that he did, all that he said, what conclusion do we come to? He is the Son of God. In his great work, Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan tells the story of Pilgrim and his, his journey to find the rest that his soul is so desperately longing for. Pilgrim is like so many of us. He, he is aware of this brokenness, aware of this sin that he carries. And it is, it is depicted in the story by this heavy pack that he, he carries on his back and he, he labors under the weight of the load. And he longs to find the place where his burden can be taken from him. And so he sets out in this journey. And he ran thus. Till he came to a place somewhat ascending. And upon that place stood a cross. And a little below in the bottom a sepulcher. 
And so I saw that just as Christian came up with the cross, his burden loosed from off his shoulders. And it fell from off of his back and began to tumble and so continued to do so until it came to the mouth of the sepulcher where it fell in and I saw it no more. And then was Christian glad and he said with a merry heart, he hath given me rest by his sorrow and he has given me life by his death. And then he stood still a while to look and wonder, for it was very surprising to him that the sight of the cross should thus ease him of his burden. He looked, therefore, and looked again until the springs that were in his head sent water down his cheeks. And as he stood looking and weeping, behold, three shining ones came to him and saluted him with peace be to you. And so the first said to him, your sins be forgiven. And the second one stripped him of his rags and clothed him with a change of raiment. And the third also set a mark on his forehead and gave him a roll with a seal upon it, which he bade him look on as he ran, and that he should give it in at the celestial gate, and so they went on their way. And Christian gave three leaps for joy, and he went on singing. Thus far did I come laden with my sin nor could aught ease the grief that I was in until I came hither. What a place is this? Must here be the beginning of my bliss? Must here the burden fall off of my back? Must here the strings that bound it to me crack? Blessed cross. Blessed sepulcher, no. Blessed rather be the man that was there put to shame for me. When was the last time we spent time simply looking at the cross. I want us to do that as we, as we finish today. I like the way Isaac Watts put it. When I survey the wondrous cross. Bring up that first slide. When I survey, when I look at, when I ponder, when I reflect on the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss. 
and pour contempt on all my pride. You might want to reflect, you might want to sing. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory My richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ, my God. All the vain things that charm me most I sacrifice them to His blood from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet O thorns compose so rich a let's stand as we sing the last verse <clears throat> were the of nature mine that were at present far too small love so amazing so Demands my soul, my life, my own.
I don't know where your heart is right now. But the Spirit of God does. Whether it is a word of conviction or whether it is a word of freedom, reminding you it is finished. The demands have been met, brothers and sisters. It's finished. And we have only to live in the freedom and the fullness of that greatest outpouring of love that has ever been shown this world. Let's say that together. It is finished. Peace of Jesus to all of us.